You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Okay, um, so taking its name from an old English word meaning clever linkage, the Sarabend Project is a linked data project that will unite 16 freestanding resources for the study of English language texts circa 1000 to 1300. Uniting these resources will provide new tools for scholars and researchers to interrogate the corpus of English writing that survives from this period. In addition to linking these resources, the project will also develop and deliver an ontology of textual metadata that will provide a foundation for future scholars and research in this field. This ontology will provide a clearer way of identifying certain texts, which will, in turn, allow users to readily and quickly understand more of what manuscripts contain which texts and, which previous and what previous scholarship has said about these texts and manuscripts. So the project team currently consists of Mark Faulkner and Declan O'Sullivan as PIs and Lucy McKenna as the computer science postdoc. I was once part of the team as the English postdoc up until September of this year. Um, today, Lucy is going to walk you through some of the design of Cerebend and demonstrate the magic that she's been able to do over the past year or so. Um, but first, you have to listen to me. So the project ultimately focuses on that slightly murky period of the linguistic history of circa 1000 to 1300, when changes were happening in the Old English language. So one thing that Mark wanted to focus on was the lack of standardization within the corpora itself. So for instance, here, you can see that the word bishop is spelled in two different ways in two different sources, but when and where? Likewise, Mark wanted to focus on delineating Old and Middle English. So here you can see the entry for Nyarksa Wang, which uh, happens to be my favorite Old English word of all time. Um, but despite being an Old English word, it's attested in early Middle English sources. Now lastly, Mark wanted to see if we could quantify the evidence. So according to Don Scrag, there could have been as many as 3,750 Old English manuscripts produced in the 11th century alone. That would have contained somewhere around 67 million words written by more than 13,000 scribes. So that's a lot of potential data that we could have had but is now unfortunately lost. So enter Cerebend. So Cerebend is based on 16 sources of metadata which have been mapped onto an ontology of works, texts, manuscripts, and scribes. The data is then uploaded to a knowledge graph which are based on triples. Users are then going to be able to query the data on our website. So some of the questions that we anticipate our users asking could be, what works are in Cotton Vespasian uh, D14? How many scribes wrote the Old English Hexateuch? Can we find those scribes anywhere else? And were any surviving manuscripts written in Horton? Or we could also ask, how many thousands of words of English were copied in the same period as the Beowulf manuscript? What proportion of the surviving evidence for the production of English at Exeter does the Leofrich Missal represent? Or what proportion of Bodley 340 and 342 is available in machine-readable format? Or how about which texts from Wollstone's Commonplace book are available in public domain translations? Now, these are our original 15 resources. Uh, the biggest ones probably being the Cameron List, uh, e. Sawyer, um, Carr's catalog of manuscripts containing Anglo-Saxon, um, etc. Uh, we also added a 16th, which is Noyce Lappage's handlist of manuscripts and fragments written or owned in England up until 1100. That was because um, I did, well, okay, I thought I digitized it for a previous project, but I'll get into a little bit um, how we had to kind of clean it up. 
Okay, so with that introduction to the project, I will now hand over to Lucy. Hi, so um, I'm Lucy, I'm the knowledge engineer on the CeraVen project. Um, so before I go too much into um, the CeraVen knowledge graph, I'll just give a quick little introduction on what exactly is a knowledge graph. Um, so a knowledge graph is a structured representation of information and it uses nodes to represent entities and edges to represent the relationships between those entities. So that's a little knowledge graph um, of J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, the Lord of the Rings works in the uh, movie. Um, so um, it organizes information in such a way that makes it easy to connect and retrieve data and it helps to reveal meaningful insights and relationships um, across different data sets. Um, linked open data then is a structured data model as a graph and published in a way that allows interlinking across data sets. So in that case using uh, unique um, identifiers for each of the entities um, in the graph um, and making these accessible um, on the web. So in our CeraVen knowledge graph, um, our nodes, our primary nodes, are the works, manuscripts, texts, and scribes. Um, and we're also modeling the attributes about these entities, um, these being things like the titles of works or the dates and places of production of a manuscript, for example, and also the relationships between uh, the entities. So what manuscripts carry what texts, uh, what scribes uh, were involved in the production of what manuscript, etc. Um, and then, so in order to do this, um, we need to put some sort of shape on our knowledge graph, and we do this using uh, what we call an ontology. Um, so it's a formal and explicit representation of knowledge um, in a specific domain, so in this case, uh, all around uh, medieval manuscripts. Um, so uh, another way to think of it is a common vocabulary for describing data. Um, so they play a crucial role in structuring the information in a knowledge graph, um, as they give us a standardized way to model and organize the data. Um, so making it easy to understand and query. So you sort of know uh, the schema and the vocabulary that uh, we're using to describe things in the graph. So you know when you're looking for a manuscript, you're looking for something called a manuscript. You're not looking for something called a book or, you know, uh, like for example. Um, so another uh, common word for ontologies um, is vocabulary. So you might hear those uh, uh, terms being interchanged. Um, so the um, ontology, that the, the primary ontology that we're using, um, or the bones of our own ontology, I suppose, was based on uh, CDOC CRM, um, the conceptual reference model. Um, so this is a uh, vocabulary for representing information in the cultural heritage domain. Um, it's quite a large vocabulary and quite complex, and it's based um, around modeling events and the uh, different entities involved in an event. So the people that an event affects, the uh, the objects that an event affects, um, and it's a international standard for uh, the controlled exchange of cultural heritage information. Um, so just very quick, so um, you can see here, uh, so this is a, an event, and these are affected by, um, an event can affect an object, so like a, a production event of a manuscript would affect the manuscript, which would be the object, a scribe would be an actor, which would which would participate in a production event. Um, the production event would happen within a certain time span and might occur at a certain place. Um, so obviously this is quite high level. Um, and so in order for us to um, kind of make it more suitable for the CeraVend project, we built our own uh, CeraVend ontology on top of the CDOC CRM ontology. 
Um, so basically we declared concepts and properties specific for the representation of manuscripts, texts and scribes um, and we did this in collaboration as the team and also using sort of our competency questions, so figuring out what exactly we thought the users uh, would like to get from the graph, what kind of questions would they ask from the graph um, and so that's how we sort of structured um, our vocabulary, our ontology and the kind of model that we were going to use. Um, so we introduced 31 classes and 18 um, additional properties, so the classes being the kind of the, the names of the entities, the concepts that we were going to talk about, um, and the properties being the, um, those edges, the, the terms that describe the relationships between the nodes in the graph. Um, so yeah, so this is an example of some of our uh, classes that we added. So instead of actor, we're now using scribe. Instead of, uh, we also have things like manuscript, and, you know, instead of an object, we obviously define that as a manuscript. Um, things like folio, page, um, all these kind of unique things that are for a manuscript. Um, and there are object properties, things like, um, these are mostly around alterations that a manuscript might experience. So like um, certain text might have been incorporated into a different manuscript um, or a revision. Um, the range, the start range of a certain text within a, within a manuscript, for example. So these are all the kind of different uh, properties that we introduced. Um, and then I don't expect uh, this to be uh, legible, but it's just a sort of demonstration of this is what our kind of end model looks like, and this is kind of what our graph um, that describes our manuscripts look like. Um, but a high level view of that would be that we have a work which is realized in a text. Um, a text is carried by a particular manuscript. Um, a manuscript might be composed of any number of different folio ranges. A particular folio range might also carry a particular text. Um, these texts might have all these things, manuscripts, texts and works might have all their various own identifiers. Um, a manuscript has a production event which is carried out by a particular scribe um, at a particular time in a particular place. So that's sort of a high level view of what that uh, ontology looks like. Um, and then our process, so um, Colleen touched on it, we have our 16 resources and in order to uplift that to the graph we uh, put them into a CSV format initially, so that was to try and tidy and clean the data, um, essentially to put, a, uh, kind of, you can see the kind of schema that we were using, the different types of works, the manuscript shelf mark, um, our own ID, the care ID, um, to put that structure and cleaning on the data and then using um, our ontology uh, we were able to map and uplift it into our uh, triples and into our knowledge graph. Um, so this is an example um, of a manuscript in Trinity, uh, TCD 492. Um, so we have our manuscript there, we know that it carries a text um, that it care called CARE 104. Um, we know that it also carries uh, a text that uh, Cameron called um, text A33.3 and we know the title of that particular text. We know that according to Cameron, um, this text was produced um, at this time span. Um, and then my next one is from the British Library. Um, the, in this case, we've got a work, uh, the Beowulf um, work. We know that it was realized in this particular text, um, that CARE called care text uh, 216, Article 4. Um, we know that according to CARE, uh, this manuscript was produced by well, who CARE calls CARE Scribe 1 and CARE Scribe 2. Um, it has this particular time span and it, was, it has this particular shelf mark. Um, 
And yes, you can imagine that as we add more and more resources, that these, that these descriptions about the manuscripts will grow and we can kind of see the different connections between the different, in this case, we've got Cameron and Kerr, um, what they uh, included in, uh, in their sort of interpretation of a particular manuscript. Um, we'll see their, and also able to see the similarities, but also, I suppose, more interestingly, the differences in how they might have interpreted or uh, detailed a particular manuscript. Um, yeah, so back to the um, so now just for some learnings, um, and, or maybe uh, teething problems. So one of the first ones is that rendering prose into machine-readable format is hard. Um, so I, I had the task of basically reading through all of Carr's manu um, manuscripts containing Anglo-Saxon, um, which I might be one of five people in the world who's ever read it as a book, um, rather than just use it as a reference. Um, and one thing that became very, very clear very early on is that um, we don't ha that Carr doesn't provide nearly the same amount of information for every single manuscript. Um, so Mark and I had to kind of really think about which uh, what information are we going to include, what is important. So you can see this one here for Junius one twenty one. That entry goes on for eight pages. You can see this one over here, Magdalen College Lat one hundred five. That's it. That's all we have. Um, and for some, we don't even have that amount of information. Um, so we, so I had to get kind of used to Carr's writing style and knowing exactly what information was going to be located where. Um, and again, um, I think we first we thought that we could get away with having three Excel sheets, and we thought that we could have about seven columns um, in each sheet. And very quickly, I think we got up to over a hundred columns in just one sheet alone. Um, so there was a lot of information that we needed to process. Um, so, yeah, this is to give you an idea of what the final spreadsheet actually looked like. Um, in terms of columns, uh, it goes up to BV, I believe. So we have a lot of information in there, um, which, again, we thought we were going to be able to get away with a little bit less. You can also see down here as well, we have more than three because we also have the alterations that Carr made himself um, and others did as well from 1957, the original publication. We also had some additions that we needed to include, as well as some text additions, some scribe additions, and corrections as well. Another thing that we found is that even data that looks structured really isn't. So this is from Scrag's Conspectus, um, which to the human eye looks very easy. We know exactly what we're looking for and how to identify it. Um, but trying to make that into machine-readable format actually proved to be quite difficult. Um, so, like I said earlier, I had I thought that I had digitized noise lappage um, for my previous project that I was working on. Um, I had four columns, and I was really proud of myself. And uh, then we ended up having, again, over 200 columns when we finally digitized it and went through the data again. Um, another kind of scary one that we've learned is that the resources that we take as stable authorities often aren't. Um, so this is from the Cameron List. And since the original publication of Cameron's list in 1973, over a thousand items have been added. 300 items have over 300 items have been deleted um, because sometimes the text can fold into another Cameron number. Um, the original entry um, is just a cross-reference. Uh, the work can be judged not to be Old English but Middle English. Uh, the work is lost, um, etc. Um, also. Uh, not all, it's not all documented in the Dictionary of Old English Log of Changes, um, and, we're, and now Mark is now likely able to make the case for 10 or 20 corrections to be made to the Dictionary of Old English, which is also kind of scary. 
Um, one of the other things that we hope that we'll be able to start to see is where our 16 sources disagree with each other, um, because that could be a little fun. Um, but one of the biggest things that we've been able to take away from this project um, is that works don't really exist, but neither do manuscripts really. So this is, um, now to all medievalists, a shelf mark like this makes sense. British Museum, Cotton Faustina, uh, A5, except folios 9 to 102, plus Dublin Trinity College 114. That makes a lot of sense to us. We, we as medievalists would know that this was once a manuscript that was together, but has now been separated. But how do you tell a computer this? How do you make that come across? And so Mark, Lucy, and I had many conversations talking about but what does what does a shelf mark mean? What does a what is a manuscript? And so in order to kind of combine computer science and medieval studies, we came up with this idea of what we call a notional manuscript, meaning that that one manuscript does not exist anymore, as it once did when it was first made within the medieval period. So kind of a you know a kind of a concept of form, if you will, or an ideal form. Um, and it's something that's been really interesting that has definitely changed the way that I approach working with the manuscript and with shelf marks and all the rest. And that could be something that we could bring up further in questions. Um, but we do have some breaking news. As of last night, I had to change the PowerPoint. So <laughs> thank you, Claire. Um, so very excitingly, we have actually been able to um, use, there's a project in Oxford called Mapping, um, Mapping Manuscript Migrations. Um, that's still ongoing, and we were actually able to map on, or we have a demo basically using their interface. Uh, so this is what it kind of looks like right now. Um, as you can see, our notional manuscripts concept. Um, this is what it looks like. Um, so you can see that we have the car labels. Uh, if there is a manuscript title associated with it, that's also been represented, as well as the shelf mark, et cetera. So you can click on one that you might be interested in, um, and we'll um, this is kind of where all the information is going to be uploaded or how it might look. So that's update number one. Update number two is that, and this is where we need your help, um, because we have kind of a mock-up of what our website could potentially look like, both within mobile format and on your laptop. Um, so right now we're kind of interested in your thoughts on what the color scheme, um, what, what you think the best color scheme might be, do you like grass or sky? Um, so if you have any strong feelings about any of these color combinations, please let us know. As you can kind of see, that's what it might look like. I think this is the last. And this is um, potentially what the homepage could look like with our beautiful sky and some of our elements of grass as well. So if you have any thoughts about how you would want it to look that would make it more enticing to use, um, please let us know either in the question sections or just catch one of the team um, after. So thank you.